0: Second Kings chapter fifteen. Remember the whole theme of first and second Kings, where they're all one book originally. And the theme is covenants and character. God's promises, his covenants that he has made with his people and how he's remained faithful to those. His character has not changed. He is the Lord, he remains the same. And then we look at Israel's side of the covenant and how they're unfaithful at times, and their character does waver and change. And so remember that the writer of this book, he's writing to exiles in Babylon who've already experienced judgment for violating the covenant. But we're seeing God's mercy and His grace in the midst of all of that, and it's available to them just like it's available to us. Specifically, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we saw that under King Jeroboam that Israel, the northern kingdom, Remember, we're in the divided kingdom right now, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Israel, the northern kingdom, experienced a, a power spike that they hadn't seen since the days of King Solomon. In the northern kingdom, the economy is booming and the people are living life to the fullest. In the south, in Judah, they have a new king, Uzziah, and he begins the process of rebuilding the nation after the fallout of his father's pride. But there's an important question, that we need to ask. What happens when you try to rebuild your life with the same mindset that caused the destruction? You end up with the same results. So this evening, we're going to see that while the external behaviors may be different, it's the same sin behind them, that invisible sin of pride. So chapter 15, we begin in verse 1. In the 20 and 7th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, to reign. Sixteen years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned two and fifty years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jecholiah of Jerusalem. So we're introduced here to Azariah, the new king of Judah. We know him better in the Bible as King Uzziah. Jeroboam, he was king in the north when Uzziah takes the throne. And prior to this point, Uzziah's father, remember, he was captured by Jeroboam in war and kind of forced to do things a certain way but I'm sorry, when Jeroboam's father fought them. But Jeroboam seems less focused on his rivalry with Judah and more on crushing the kingdom of Syria to his north. And he succeeds, conquers Damascus, and expands Israel's borders far to the north and the east. Well, this gives Judah some much-needed breathing room to rebuild. And so, he begins to reign, it says, in that 26th year of King Jeroboam of Israel. Now, it tells us here that he reigned for 52 years… Azariah didn't reign 52 years by himself. He co-reigned 24 years with his father. After Israel captured his father in battle, this was probably part of the arrangement for his ransom is that he doesn't have full power to limit his power. Remember, other hostages were kept in Israel to ensure the enforcement of the agreement. As I said earlier, that Azariah is better known as Uzziah. Perhaps he took that new name when his father died and he became the sole ruler of, of Judah, uh, that was a common practice. When a king came into power, he would change his name. And like I said, he reigned for 52 years. 52 is the long, second longest reign among all the kings of Judah. But what's interesting is only 18 of those years did he reign by himself. We'll learn why the end of his reign wasn't by himself either, a little bit. But Uzziah was one of the most popular kings that Judah had. 2 chronicles twenty six tells us why he refortified Jerusalem, he reconquered the Philistines, he had a large standing army, and he brought economic prosperity back to the nation of Judah. But remember, our writer 's not so much concerned about those things he 's concerned about whether kings pleased the Lord or not, and so verse three, we find out his spiritual evaluation, and he Uzziah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done, save that the high places were not removed, the people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. Unlike his father, Uzziah did not slip into idolatry later in his life. But he also wasn't like David. He was more like his dad in a few other ways. It says here that he allowed these high places to remain. The phrase there, save, means except for this. He pleased the Lord. Did That was right in his eyes, except for this. The first thing was that he allowed these high places. He tolerated something that did not please the Lord. Now, someone asked me a great question last week. Why did all these kings tolerate the high places when God repeated over and over again in his law, don't do that, that I'm going to choose the place where you bring your offerings to you. I'm going to choose the place where you burn incense. Will you have these uh, ritualistic prayers to me? Why did they not get rid of these things? I liken it to any politician who tries to take away convenient things. Regardless of your opinion on the use of certain home appliances, there's a lot of unhappy people right now because some of our political leaders want to take those things away. I find it this way. It's similar when I will talk to a, a Christian who on to church, and they'll be like, well, you know, we worship God just us and our family and our home. We don't need to go to a local church that conversation tends to not go well nine times out of 10. It just, it just does. Now, why? Because if you attended that family worship gathering, you wouldn't necessarily find bad teaching or bad people. In fact, you might come away sensing that they're spiritual people and the meeting was meaningful. In fact, you wouldn't be able to put your finger on the experience and say, that's wrong, except for the fact that God's Word commands us not to forsake the local public assembly of believers except for the fact that God commands us in his word to step outside our comfort zone and submit to regular Bible teaching. So in that situation, it'd be super easy to say to yourself, I mean, they're nice folks. I don't want to get in an argument. There's a lot worse things going on in the church. Why give these folks a hard time and create disharmony? Now, put yourself in Uzziah's shoes. I'm just a pastor. This guy's a king. It's more than just avoiding the possibility of disharmony. His father and his grandfather were assassinated by disgruntled countrymen. Taking away their gas heater is not a good idea. Which is why courage is absolutely necessary to be a truly good leader. Courage to lead people in the right direction no matter what. Courage to maintain the right character when they don't follow you. Courage to just stay the course. And while Uzziah did a lot of things that pleased the Lord, he didn't have that courage. Like his father before him, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and so many others that didn't remove the high places. It shows up later in his life that he didn't have this courage because his successes make him arrogant. And this is the second way that he was like his father. Look at verse 5. It's the only thing this guy includes about him, aside from his spiritual evaluation, the only thing it mentions specifically that he did, he says, And the Lord smote the king so that he was a leper unto the day of his death, and he dwelt in a sever house, it means in physical isolation. And so Jotham, the king's son, was over the house, over the palace, judging the people of the land. When you look at Uzziah's life, he didn't try to start an unbiblical war with Israel like his father had. But if you look at the account in Second Chronicles, he does assume that he deserved to act like a priest. He actually goes into not just the temple, but he goes into the most holy place. So he's right in front of the veil that separates between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies. And he, he his says, I should be able to go to the golden altar of incense and burn incense to the Lord there. I'm no different. I'm just as qualified to do this as any priest. He believed there was no reason he should be kept from this priestly privilege, even though he's not of the house of Aaron, he's not of the family of Levi. And so when he approached the altar, God turned him into a leper in the span of a heartbeat. And so he was in physical isolation for the last 10 years of his reign. He couldn't attend public functions, he couldn't do his normal duties as king. And so his son Jotham ended up handling the daily governing of the nation. Pride is so dangerous. One of the problems with prosperity is that it's easy to become prideful. It's easy to look around at everybody else and go, what's your problem? It's one of the reasons our nation is headed downward so rapidly. There's so little humility, regardless of politics or po- philosophy. Pride is rampant. And we must not let it take hold in our hearts. We're believers. Pride has no place. Because Pride corrupts even very good men and women without us realizing it until it's too late. That happens because pride begins as an invisible sin. It's not ugly like other things are. If someone has an immorality problem, it shows up in external ways that others can see if they find out about it. But if like, if you were to share something like, oh, you know, I get prideful sometimes, we're like, oh, okay, yeah, welcome to the club. We don't tend to, we think, okay, yeah, well, what harm does that do? It's not like you... Beat your kids, or you abandon your wife because you're drinking so much. It's an invisible sin at, start, at first. It's so subtle. That's why the Bible says over and over again humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. A final note before we read these last two verses on King Uzziah this guy was a good king, he did love the Lord. Which means it is possible to be a believer, to sincerely worship the Lord, but experience heavy discipline from God. That is possible. That is a possibility. These kings that we've been reading about are proof of that. God is so gracious and kind. But you know, God does not promise believers immunity from the consequences of sin. He doesn't. If you act like Uzziah or his dad, Amaziah, or his grandfather, Joash, don't get angry at God when He disciplines you. Instead, repent. Verses 6 and "And 7, and the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so, Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, again, we read this, we're like, all right, next king. But you got to put yourself in the shoes of these exiles over in Babylon. Like, if you're reading through, you know, it's kind of like when you get to a president, it's like getting Abe Lincoln or, or FDR. You know, I'm not saying you have to like these guys. I'm just saying they're, you know, these guys were, did momentous things. They, they were very important in the goings of our nation's history. It'd be like, oh, man, you know, I I forgot, you know, Uzziah's next. This is going to be good. You're like, seven verses? The only thing you talk about is the fact that he's a leper? What? Again, it would be like going through, like, I'm a nerd. I love, I don't remember the name of the guy, but he did like this 11-part series on the history of baseball, and then he did one on the Civil War. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, Ken Burns. Love that stuff. I could eat that stuff up all day. I love it. But it would be like going through the history of Israel, and you get a three-minute segment on Uzziah. And you just think to yourself, the guy reigned for 55 years. You couldn't give him at least 55 verses? 52, sorry. Seven? This must have shocked the exiles that this is all the writer had to say. This is one of our greatest kings. But this absence of all the other stuff Uzziah did with what the writer does include, the fact that God disciplined him, that reality, that's what he decides to do, is meant to settle in as they read it. The Lord smote one of our greatest kings with leprosy, and that's the most important lesson his life has to offer us. Last week, we looked at the northern kingdom, which had no good kings, and we looked at this great mercy God showed to them. Like, the lesson was the idea that, you know, you're in exile in Babylon, and and you can find hope for God's blessing despite the fact that you've been in sin. That if you turn to Him and cry out for mercy, the Lord is longing to show mercy. But this section, the writer has almost like the opposite lesson. It's almost a juxtaposition that serves as a warning on the wings of a beautiful promise. Because while it is true that even the most wicked person can find mercy if they humble themselves and cry out to God, it is also true that the most successful person can experience God's heavy discipline if they become prideful. The truth is, there's only one thing that will keep the exiles in Babylon from God's mercy. One thing could even make their current awful situation worse. Pride. Pride. We, maybe I'll say I, but my observation is it's not just me. Is that we perceive what we perceive to be real life is often radically different than what's really going on. You know, my perception of things is hardly perfect. For instance, I have found that there is a very strong part of my being that just wants to be neutral in life. I just coast. I put it on cruise control, no problems, you know, just... Don't rock the boat, just coast. And... Sometimes we can kind of get in a place where we go, okay, I'm just cruising, I'm good. But the truth is there's no such thing. Like that, that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as coasting spiritually. I'm either making regular choices to humble myself or my default setting is self-sufficiency and pride. I mean, that's it. I'm either making things worse or I'm growing in grace. That's it. There is no coasting, right? Even the appearance of coasting isn't real. I'm just backsliding so slowly, I don't notice it. And if we're going to move forward, if we want to move forward, we need to line up our perceptions with reality, and we gain that reality from God's Word. Now, verse 8, we swap back to the northern kingdom, and we're going to see now the end of Jehu's line. It says, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, did Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reign over Israel in Samaria for six months. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Now, the name Jeroboam there is twice, but it's a different person. Jeroboam, his dad, is Jeroboam the second. The second Jeroboam named there is the very first king of Israel, the one who built the golden calves in Bethel and in the city of Dan and said, Israel, here are your gods. Don't go down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. But this incredibly short reign comes on the wings of his father's 41-year reign where Israel experienced its greatest prosperity since Solomon. Why is this guy's reign cut so short? I mean, it's not like he did anything spiritually worse than his dad. There isn't any big political blunder mentioned. The nation just seems seems to be just as prosperous under him as it was under his dad. <clears throat> well, it comes down to two things. His reign was cut so short because of the wickedness of the times, and God's judgment. Verse ten. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people, and slew him and reigned in his place. And The rest of the Acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord which He spoke unto Jehu, saying, "Your sons shall sit on, the thr- sit on the throne." Pardon me, sons sh- shall sit on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. So first off, the wickedness of the times. It says here that Shalom the son of Jabeth, conspired. It means to rise up in a planned, coordinated rebellion, and he killed him right in front of the people. No, There was no under-the-covers assassination attempt, something in the side room. No, this was in a public gathering setting in front of everybody. This was a public, shameless coup, a power grab by a wicked faction who saw a prosperous kingdom ripe for the stealing. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8, Proverbs has a lot to say about government leaders. In Proverbs 20, verse 8, it says, A king that sits on the throne of judgment scatters away all evil with his eyes. That's part of the job of a political leader. We read it in Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, when it talks about how God has ordained governing powers to be a, a terror to evildoers. In Romans 13, Verses 3 and 4, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For these governing authorities, they're the minister of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, then be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. That's the job of a political leader, to punish evildoers, to hold them accountable. That's what they're supposed to do. And you know what? When they're doing that job, it's great. But what happens when you have a ruler who tolerates or encourages evil? Well, the Bible says the wicked prosper. And when a wicked nation experiences prosperity, the wicked are the ones who gain power. In Proverbs 22, verse 1, it says this. It says, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver And gold. Jeroboam, this guy's dad, had amassed wealth and power and prosperity and and land and treaties and all this kind of stuff. But neither Zechariah, this guy here, or his father, neither of them had loving favor. I mean, these men clearly bore him no love. And what's crazy is it happens in front of the people and nobody complains. As long as the money's flowing and life is rolling, does it really matter who's at the top? The truth is, there was only one thing that kept this from happening before Zechariah's reign, and it was God's promise to Jehu. Remember, after Jehu dealt with Ahab's line, God was pleased with him, but then Jehu didn't rip down those golden calves. and The Lord came to him and He said, you've done that which is evil in my eyes. You've tolerated these idols, but because of what you did, your faithfulness in ridding Israel of Ahab, I'm going to let your descendants to the fourth generation reign, and then after that you're cut off. That's about a hundred years of a chance to repent. God promised Jehu this. And then God sent prophets to warn, not just Jehu but his son, his grandson, his great-grandson, through two prophets that judgment was coming upon that final generation. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, one of those minor prophets we don't really hear a lot about, he ministered during the time of King Jeroboam, this guy's dad. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, And the Lord said unto him, referring to they had, he had a child with his wife, and He said, call his name Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. This, this has been warned. God sent this prophet to go and warn this guy's dad, if you don't repent, it's going to happen. He sent Amos to tell him the same thing. Amos is another prophet. He's actually a Judean shepherd who God sent up north to go warn them of many things. He says in Amos 7.9, in the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Multiple prophets coming up to warn Jeroboam, if you don't repent, that's it. And so his son takes the throne. He doesn't heed the prophet's words either. He leaves these golden calves there. He doesn't repent so, once God's promise to Jehu is fulfilled, God took his hand of protection off Jehu's line, and this wicked man comes and kills him. God kept his promise to Jehu, both the good and the bad. God always keeps his promises. They always come to pass, whether they're good or bad. Well, this coup, it throws Israel into a state of political instability with multiple factions competing for the throne. In fact, Shalom's reign is even shorter. Look at verse 13. And Shalom the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Terza and came to Samaria and smote Shalom the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and slew him and reigned in his place. And the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And then Menahem smote Tifsa and all that were therein and the coasts thereof from Terza, because they did not open unto him. Therefore, he smote it. We'll get to the rest of that shortly. But this guy, Shalom, we don't even know who he is. I mean, we know his dad, but that's about it. We don't know if he's a general, a politician, or a nobody. The only thing we know is that he ran into trouble 30 days into his reign. Doesn't even last six months. Now, this guy, Menahem, Josephus claims he was one of Zechariah's top generals. He was stationed in the city of Terza, it tells us here. That was the former capital of Israel before Ahab moved the capital to Samaria. So, being in charge of the old capital like this would make him a man of many honors, a powerful man in that society. He took issue with Shalom's rebellion, and he marched his army to Samaria. He kills Shalem and he makes himself king instead. Now, It is interesting to note that Shalom is the only Israeli king who's not critiqued for maintaining the golden calf worship system. No evaluations given at all. Perhaps murdering the former king in plain sight is valuation enough. So this guy, Menahem, becomes the king. Now, Menahem may be a powerful man, but he experiences opposition to his reign from the tribe of Ephraim, and he decides to make an example of them. Look at verse 16. Then Menahem smoked... Tifsa uh, smoked. I'm having problems with my S words today. He smote Tifsa and all that were there in and the coast thereof from Terza. Uh, Tifsa is a city in the hills of Ephraim, about 10 miles south of Samaria. It's right there in, in modern day what we would call the West Bank. And so, it's, it's not far away from the capital. He smote that city and it says the coast, which means all the territory between there and Terza, which is just east of Samaria. And the reason he did it is because they did not open unto him. He said, hey, can I come over? And they said, no. And he killed everybody. That's not what he did. The word did not open means to allow movement. In other words, he starts trying to act like a king, and Ephraim says, you're not going to act like a king. They send someone to stop him from trying to consolidate the kingdom. They send an armed force to oppose him. They lose. And after Menahem wins that battle… In order to put an end to future opposition, he shows what, that he would do, what he would do to anyone who opposed him. He kills all the non-combatants as well, including the unborn children. He says, therefore, he smote it, the city, and all the region around there, and all the women therein that were with child, he, the Bible says he ripped up. There is an Assyrian poem written in honor of the Assyrian king tiglath Pelister the I. The poet praises him for being so thoroughly victorious that no one could stop him from cutting out the children in the womb and killing them. The poet goes on to say that this is what happens to those who would sin against Assyria's God. All history is riddled with governing authorities, military authorities, seeking to control a population of people through fear. This is a horrifying and wicked way to attempt to control a population. And it, its brutality, well, it generated a fear that kept a people from rebelling, lest they lose their most precious possession, their next generation. Haziel, king of Syria, had perpetrated this crime upon the people of Israel. Remember I had mentioned that when Jehoahaz was king, that Haziel enacted a policy of extermination with Israelites. So anyone that was defeated in battle, they didn't take any prisoners, no hostages, they killed everyone, and they would go to the town, and they would murder everyone, and they would also do this. Things were so brutal and so ugly and so horrible that Jehoahaz was so desperate that this wicked man began to cry out to God for help. God's mercy upon the nation of Israel was because God saw this horrible practice inflicted upon them. And yet now, just a few decades later, one of their own generals is doing it to God's people. That's what happens, though, when a nation responds to God's mercy with wickedness. You end up becoming a prosperous, selfish, proud people who who forget mercy and basic human dignity. If you're wondering if I'm alluding to our current cultural atmosphere, I'm not alluding. We are living in such a culture. I look and I see how people act towards one another, sometimes even in the name of the Lord. And I just pray God have mercy on us. Because if you don't, we're just going to kill each other. We've got way too much time on our hands. We're so prosperous but we're so wicked. We have not turned back to the Lord. And when that happens and you combine prosperity with wickedness, we become insensate as a people. Everyone becomes a demon if they don't agree with me. So God have mercy on us because God's mercy and our repentance is the only thing that's going to rescue us. I'll tell you this. It's not going to be kings who have a better platform than the current guy who's in charge that's going to rescue us. It is not. I know that's not a popular opinion. It's not a popular concept. But it's biblical. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. That's it. But wickedness is a reproach to any people. It doesn't matter. There is no such thing as the lesser of two evils. Anytime you have evil, you get evil. If none of the individuals are good, then you're going to get evil. You will not exalt a nation, no matter how much more prosperous the nation might be economically. No matter how much more we might think we're getting ahead, you're still going to end up with evil. We don't need kings with a better platform. We need righteous men and righteous women. And that's my prayer every day for our nation. God, please, I know we have the leaders we deserve, but please give us godly men and godly women, please. We don't deserve it, but Lord, we need it, or we're in big trouble. Now, as you could imagine, this horrible thing put terror into the people's hearts. And so, Menahem does become Israel's next king, and we'll get to his reign next week. There's too much here I want to talk about for us to cover it all tonight. I'm not done, though, because I've got time. I know that's rare for me, but I've got time. All of these kings leave a lesson for us, all these guys. And the lesson is this. Pride is a sin that can be very hard to see in yourself. It's one of the... Like, most of the time, like, I can evaluate myself and be like, "Well, you said this. That was not nice. You did this. That was not godly. But pride is one of those things that it's very difficult to critique yourself because it's not usually as tangible. Now, since God hates pride and He opposes us when we're proud then we can't let that difficulty stop us from recognizing it in our hearts and in our lives. So, the the question becomes then, how do I detect pride in my life? Like, how do I go about making sure I'm not becoming prideful or I'm not prideful? Turn to John chapter 9 with me. You know the story. The man's born blind in the beginning of the chapter. Jesus heals him, creates a ruckus. The religious leaders, they've been turning against Jesus. They've been excommunicating people, ex-communicating people who, have, who are followers of Jesus. It's a bad time to be a Jesus follower at that point in time. And so the problem is, is this miracle creates issues for their policy. And so they keep interviewing this guy, interview his parents, interview him, trying to get somebody to say, well, God's good, but Jesus is wrong. And they can't find anything. And so when this man has been born blind is just kind of baffled why they keep asking him questions, he's like, why do you ask me all these questions about Jesus? Do you want to be his disciples too? And that just, they excommunicate him. I mean, there's more there, but they end up excommunicating him. Jesus finds him, ministers to him, and some of the religious leaders overhear what Jesus is saying to him. Jesus said in verse 39 of John 9, for judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Some of the Pharisees which were with Him heard heard these words and said unto Him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. You see, the Pharisees believed they had it figured out. That's the problem. You and I cannot take that mentality when it concerns, is there pride in my heart? I can never take that mentality, even when I'm convinced I'm biblically correct. I can't. We must recognize that we don't see perfectly yet, no matter how much we think we understand. We need to recognize that it is possible to understand a biblical concept, but fail miserably at our implementation of it. That is a possibility when pride's in the way. So, first off, we need to humble ourselves daily in the sight of God, saying, Lord, teach me. (laughs) Show me if there's anything wicked in my heart. Show me if I'm going the wrong way. Lord, I realize I am going to have a blind spot when it concerns my pride. So, I'm, I'm acknowledging that I'm blind in this area. I need you to reveal it to me. So, that's the first way. Secondly, and this is usually how God's going to reveal it. We need to ask others to give us honest feedback and then listen to what they have to say with great humility. It's why God gives us wives, husbands. Did someone say amen? Good for you. <laughs> you get a sticker. <laughs> Proverbs twelve fifteen. the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkens unto counsel is wise. I would say that probably one of my most consistent prayers on a daily basis is God, I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be a fool. I know that my capacity to be a fool is great because I know that I, I think I got it figured out at times. I know I don't see everything correctly pride is often completely invisible to us but very visible to others and so just as god sent prophets to his people in israel and judah god sends individuals to us to point out what we cannot see i mean have you ever if you're married you kind of know how this goes your spouse comes to you and they point out a character flaw and you're like i don't have that problem And they're like, I think you do. And you're like, give me some examples. And then they give you the examples, and then you give your explanations, right? And then you go, see, I don't have a problem in that area. And they go, actually, I think you do. And then you get mad. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he that hearkens unto counsel is wise refusing to humbly take those critiques to the Lord is foolish, and it keeps us in a blind state. The very last words of the book of Acts are telling to me. Turn to Acts 28, and I'm going to close with this. We're done a little early tonight. I figured I owed you about 10 minutes from this morning. Some of the last words of the book of Acts, like the end of church history as it's been inspired, and it's, it's inspired recording to us. Last words of Luke. Acts 28, verse 23, and referring to Paul, he's in prison, and it says, when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging. Paul was under house arrest, so he got to Rome, and they heard his case, and they thought, this is not like a hardcore case. Why, why we got this guy you know, under such bad rap. So they put him in a house. He was under house arrest. He was, had a, a Roman soldier attached to him at all times, so he couldn't just leave. But this gave him a lot of freedom to interact with others, people come visit him. He wasn't in a place where he couldn't interact. And so they appointed him a day where there came unto him, into his lodging, many, just people who, Rabbi Paul, want to hear from Rabbi Paul, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. I mean, Paul's just doing a conference here for a bunch of unbelievers who, probably Jewish people, who are curious about, you know, what, what's this guy Paul about? And he's just sharing the gospel, going through the old, all the Old Testament, sharing how Jesus is who, you know, is the Messiah. The kingdom of God is like this. This is where it's at. Verse 24, and some believed the things which were spoken, and some did not believe. So, what happens when you have a group of people where some people think one way and the other people think another way? They start arguing. So, Paul's done with his, you know, teaching all day, all night. He's giving these, you know, massive teachings, pleading with these people, preaching the gospel, and the, the culmination is they're arguing. They can't decide. And when they did not agree amongst themselves, they departed. They departed after that. So, this is going on, and Paul finally says, you know what? And then he quotes Isaiah. Well spoke the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand. Seeing you shall see, and not perceive. Why? Why are they going to hear, but not get it? Why are they going to see, but not perceive? For the heart of this people, verse 27, is waxed gross. It means it's, it's grown dull their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. In other words, Paul's pleading with him, God wants wants to heal you, he wants to work in your life, he wants to do these things, Jesus wants to save you. And he says, I'm done, I'm done. Isaiah spoke about you guys correctly. You don't want to listen. You think you know it all, you think you can figure it out on your own, I'm done." I read that, and it's a challenge to me. (laughs) I don't want to be someone who has a proud, stubborn heart. I don't want to be someone who won't receive correction, or won't receive critique. Because part of the solution to avoiding pride, number one, Go into the Lord and say, Lord, I'm I'm acknowledging I don't see correctly all the time. I don't know everything. I've got areas in my life that still need work. And then, secondly, Lord, when you bring people into my life to point out those flaws, I want to humbly listen to what they have to say and bring it back to you for evaluation. To come to you and to say, Lord, is this real? Do things need to change? Let's be those who have humble receptive hearts even when the message is hard to hear. Amen. So stand. My family growing up, we liked to argue. I realize I think I was probably 20 or 21, I was a very poor listener. I wanted to be a pastor. That's not a good trait to have if you want to be a pastor. My family very often the conversations would not be very productive. We loved each other, and, and I have a great family. I love my family. I've loved my, my growing up. Was it flawed? Yeah, like everybody else. But one of the things that I know was a challenge for us when we were younger in the faith, particularly for me, is I didn't, wasn't actually listening when someone was trying to convince me or persuade me or talk to me about something. I was thinking how I was going to respond. And so I made a commitment to the Lord. At some, I don't remember when, but I made a commitment to the Lord. I said, Lord, when a critique comes my way, every time, no matter how much I want to just blast that person because I think they're wrong, I'm going to bring it to you first, and then I'll go blast them. No, just kidding. I'm going to bring it to you first and ask you, is there anything I can take from this to be more like you? And I'll tell you, it is the rare, rare occasion that I go bring it to the Lord, and there's not something I can get from it. There's not some way that I can improve from it. Even if the critique isn't fair, even if it's exaggerated, even if it's only a small thing that maybe they might have a point on, it's very rare that there's not something that I can learn that I can do better. That's my charge to you. Make that kind of a commitment to the Lord so that when your spouse, or when a friend, or when a someone who's you know teaching a study or counseling you or encouraging you, whatever it might be, don't always get defensive. You're loved by the Father, your sins are forgiven that person probably really loves you a lot. And they probably wasn't easy for them to tell you about that area that they think you can do better in. So why not just say to them, hey, thank you, I'm going to take that to the Lord. And then do it. And I'll tell you this, if there is no validity to what they're saying, the Lord will let you know that. And He'll say, don't receive that, that wasn't from me. I just have learned Only in very rare occasions is that the case. Usually, there's something I can learn to do better. So, Lord, we don't want to be prideful people. Lord, I know how easy it is for me to slip into that blind state where I think I see. So, Lord, you know our hearts all here tonight. You know that there's probably some of us here tonight going, Oh, Lord, Lord, that's me. He's talking about me. So, Lord as we're crying out to you and committing things in our hearts to you, would you please show us where the areas are that we're prideful, and maybe show us the areas where we just don't listen to others, and make us good listeners. Make us humble. Teach us to be humble, Lord, as it concerns critiques that you bring by your Spirit or that others bring into our lives, that we might be becoming more and more like you each day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.